So James 2. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good uh, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Well, a few weeks after we got married, my good wife, Anna, went and bought herself a planter box. uh, And she planted some herbs and some flowers and some cherry tomatoes. And I got regular updates on these cherry tomatoes. Uh, The plant first was this big, and then it was this big. And the fruit on it looked good. Uh, They looked like good, juicy little cherry tomatoes. And then one day, Anna peers out our back window and she says to herself, hooray, my cherry tomatoes are ready. And she scurries out the back. Uh, But upon closer inspection, these tomatoes weren't ready. In fact, they would never be ready. 
Uh, the problem was that a bug had got inside the tomatoes and had eaten out all of the inside. And so they were hollow and dead, never to be used, never to be enjoyed. Now, the great 2019 tragedy of the Rhodes veggie patch has been resolved. <laughs> and it's got some new tomatoes in there, and they're doing very well. Uh, but this situation is much more serious. James is worried that his reader's faith is like those tomatoes. It looks like they're genuine, healthy Christians, but on closer inspection, James says that their faith is dead. The shell of the thing is there, but there's no life in it. And James says he can tell because of their actions. These Jewish Christians supposedly treasure God's law and have faith in Jesus, but James says that their actions dishonour God. How do we make sure that our faith isn't one that dishonours God? How do we make sure that our faith is genuine and not hollow and dead? Don't worry, James is going to tell us. So James says the first problem is that there is religion without love. If you're into taking notes, that's James's first point in this section, that you can't have religion without love. As they meet together, as they sing songs, as they pray, as they take studious sermon notes, they dishonour God because they don't have love. What's the love that God cares most about? It's love for himself and love for your neighbour. So James puts out this scenario of a rich man and a poor man walking into church. And he shows up his readers, showing them that their heads, and more importantly, their hearts, are so off track. So this situation is easy enough to follow. The first guy comes in, and it's just come from Gazman. He's got the boat shoes, those pants that are like chinos, but a bit nicer than chinos. He's not wearing the rugby jumper, but he's just kind of got it draped over his shoulder and tied in a neat little knot over his chest. The hair game is tight. And as he breezes in, he makes way for the second man. He hasn't just come from Gazman. He's just come from the food bank. He was smelled long before he was seen. Any logos that were on his clothes are long faded. Now, when this happens, James's readers thought uh, that being chummy with Mr. Gazman would have its benefits. Even they tell, them, tell themselves for the church. He's a well-connected guy. He'll have money, he'll have resources, he'll have friends in high places. Surely if we can lock this guy in, get him in a hub group, make him feel at home, he could help us in big ways. Think of the potential. I know I'm meant to love my neighbours, but surely Mr. Gazman is more my neighbour than this other guy. Is he anyone's neighbour if he doesn't have an address? And so they say to the first man, come with me, come and sit up the front. And the second man is tucked away up the back. James says that having favouritism like this amongst Christians is a terrible thing. First of all, he says, it is dishonouring to God. Have a look at verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith 
and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. God loves to lift up the lowly. He has a heart for the poor and the afflicted. Jesus says at the very start of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God's way has always been to care for the poor and the downtrodden. So when they show special attention to Mr. Gazman, they are dishonouring God. They dishonour God's chosen ones and God's chosen way. And verse 4 says that when they do this, they become judges with evil thoughts. They do the opposite of what God does. They discriminate according to appearance. When we show favoritism, we puff ourselves up. We make ourselves into mini-gods. I'll tell you where to sit. I'll decide who I sit next to. Their hearts are in the wrong place. And so are their heads. I love it when the Bible gets this practical, when it grabs you by the shirt front and says, can't you see how dumb your sin is? Verse 6 says that cuddling up to rich people doesn't work. Rich people don't get rich by being generous. And in the time of James, they got rich by charging big interest on loans, dragging the poor into court and making them forfeit their land to the rich for a fraction of its value. Mr. Gazman hasn't just come from Gazman. He's just come from the court where he squeezed your cousin's life savings out of him. And now when God has given you the perfect opportunity to love and to care for the needy, he's brought the low in spirit into your church, the very place, the one place that will be shown honour and mercy. But you're too busy chasing after the other guy. We talked about Kanye West last week. Imagine if Kanye came to church next week. Imagine that. Do you think you'd want to meet him? Shake his hands? Get a picture with him? Would you even notice the new person sitting alone up the back? Imagine if he said he was moving to Perth. That him and Kim and North and South and East were looking for a new church. Imagine what that would mean for uni church if he started coming here. Imagine that. Imagine what God could do if Kanye started coming here. Think of the potential. Favoritism like this dishonors God's chosen ones and God's chosen ways. It doesn't make sense. But worst of all, James says, it breaks God's royal law, his law of love. If you flick back to chapter 1 and have a look at verse 26, you'll see that James has already talked about how people deceive themselves. He says that there are people who have loose lips. These people consider themselves to be religious, but they're deceiving themselves because their actions and their beliefs don't line up. They're in church every Sunday. They're on every roster that they can get on. But as they go about doing all this, they neglect, overlook, and reject God's great command to love your neighbour as yourself. And this is highlighted in the way they show favouritism to new people. They're separated, ranked on appearance. Love is absent. The key ingredient in God's command to love your neighbour is that your neighbour isn't the person that you live next to, nor is it the person you want to live next to, like Mr Gazman. It's anyone and everyone 
who God puts in your path. But they show favoritism. They choose who to love and who not to love. The problem is that they love their religion instead of people and in doing so have missed the whole point of their religion. How we welcome people and how we show favour to some people might seem like a small thing, but James thinks otherwise. Have a look at verse 9. But if you show favouritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. And keep reading verse 10 and 11. But whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, and do not, and, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. We're all down on murder, right? Hopefully. Come see me up the front afterwards if you've got any questions about that. Why are we down on murder? For lots of reasons, but I think first and foremost, it is such a confronting display of hatred, of not loving your neighbour as yourself. Similar similar with adultery. What a way to disregard others by taking for yourselves what you want without caring for those that it affects. And James says favouritism is the same kind of thing. It's the opposite of loving others as yourself. Do not murder and do not commit adultery are big laws. They are Ten Commandment laws. But James calls love the royal law. How could we neglect to obey it? Imagine if in your conversations after church, you're chatting with your friends and they tell you that they've murdered someone this week. But they explain they had a big week. They're under the pump at work. They haven't been getting enough sleep. Your friend says they just weren't in the right headspace for not murdering someone this week. (laughs) You know, other people are really good at not murdering. God has given them that gift, but he hasn't given me that gift. Would your friend get an understanding nod? Yeah, it's really tough not murdering some people sometimes, isn't it? Uh, Especially last thing on a Sunday night when you're tired and you've got the whole week ahead of you. Is that what you'd say? Of course not. Why do we have this attitude about love? Why, James asks, we so take it or leave it when it comes to love? It is the royal law. Now, don't mishear me. The gospel is for murderers and adulterers. We've already nailed Jesus to the cross. Rahab the prostitute, in verse 25, is considered a righteous woman. The forgiveness that comes from our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, as is called in verse 1, is all-encompassing. There is nothing you can do, no matter how hard you try, to make yourself unforgivable. But you have been saved from that, James says. Saved from that way of living. Saved from judging others. Saved from living to please people who have power over you and exploit you because of it. Now you can live by the law that gives freedom. Have a look at verse 12. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. James's rebuke to his readers comes with teeth. When we show favouritism, 
When we make ourselves judges over the lowly, we are saying we prefer judgment to mercy. And James thinks that that is a fearful thing. That when the mercy of Jesus Christ has been extended to us, that we would opt to show judgment over mercy. Praise God that mercy triumphs over judgment. And so, of course, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. But James isn't done. This religion that his readers love so much, he says, is quickly becoming like a dead body. He said that there's religion without love, and next he says there's faith without deeds. Faith without deeds is dead. Four different times he says it. Faith, if not accompanied by actions, is dead. Faith without deeds is useless. A person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Faith without deeds is dead. Now, there might be uh, some alarm bells going off at this point, so let's address that before we dive in too much further. What's all this about works? What about being saved by grace alone and saved by faith alone? If you're checking out Christianity for the first time or for the second time, you might have heard your Christian friends or family members talking about how putting your trust in Jesus is the thing that makes you a Christian. And don't worry, they're absolutely right. Come with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. But please keep reading. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. There's about 50 different sermons you could preach on those few verses, um, but I just want to draw out that Paul, James, and all the other apostles put faith and deeds hand in hand. Peter in 1 Peter puts it like this. He talks about being chosen by God through the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus. A proper type of faith will always spill out into good deeds. I work on a lot of different construction sites and I have to deal with a lot of supervisors from other companies. Uh, It's a really important job, their their job, not mine, uh, in order to make sure that jobs run smoothly, the workers are looked after and have the resources that they need to succeed. But bad supervisors think that their only job is to rev up their workers, to tell them to work harder and better and faster. This isn't what James is doing here. He's concerned about deeds because he's concerned about his reader's faith. In verse 14, he asks the questions, asks the question, can such a faith save them? He isn't critiquing their amount of faith or the quality of their faith. He wants them to examine the type of faith they have. You can see what type of faith you have by your deeds, both horizontal between you and other people and vertical between you and God. 
And so he wants them to be doing good because that will prove the type of faith that they have. He's worried because their faith is starting to sink, to stink. It's starting to smell a bit like a dead body. Ironically, the hyper-religious Jews are the ones on charge for not doing enough. Their faith is the type of faith that doesn't produce good deeds. Nothing happens as a result of it. It's like he says in verse 16, going to a poor, starving person and saying, get warm, eat some food, and then giving them a pat on the back. They can't eat your words to fill themselves up. They can't wrap themselves up in your warm sentiment. They're still hungry and cold. James says it's the same with faith. If we say, I'm a Christian, but I'm not interested in obeying Jesus' words, if we have no interest in acknowledging that he is the judge of right and wrong and not us, then James says our faith is dead. It always was dead. The type of faith that Jesus wants for his readers is the type that will resonate with the poor. As people who used to be shut out from God's love, We should feel compassion for those who are cold and who can't get themselves warm. Jesus has given us himself, the bread of life, so that we will never go hungry again. James says that if you believe in Jesus, you should want to feed those who can't feed themselves. If your faith is simply a one-off transaction with God, uh, where you've said a prayer, ticked a box, said that I'm a Christian, have no care for those less fortunate you, then James is warning you that your faith stinks. It is dead and rotting away. Living faith will change this. It will mean honour and mercy for the poor in the eyes of the world. But it will also mean peace with God. Have a look at verse 19 and 23. You've got demons and you've got Abraham. On the one hand, you have knowing about God and on the other, you have trusting God. One results in shuddering and the other one results in friendship. See, there are some of these Jewish Christians who think that showing honour and mercy to the poor is an extracurricular activity. It's an elective. God has given me the gift of faith. I know that God is one, they say. I'm schooled in Reformed theology. I even get asked to preach sometimes. I can spot a heresy a mile away. God's given me faith, but he hasn't given me deeds. It's up to other people to do all that loving, people who are gifted in those areas. The problem with this type of faith isn't just that it's wrong, it's it's also that it only leads to fear. If you only believe things about God, but don't believe God, don't trust him and his promises, you won't have peace with him. If you don't believe that God has saved you from eternal death and given you his son, Jesus, then you will live in fear. As you learn more about the oneness and the holiness and the awesomeness of God, it will only make you shudder. How ironic that these religious Jews have a faith that gives them no peace with God. And it means they have no capacity to give themselves over for other people. And so James wants to win them over. He wants to win them back. He says, this is the way that it has always been. 
Their ancestor, Abraham, long, long ago, was called God's friend because his belief in God went hand in hand with his obedience to him. Rahab the prostitute is remembered as a righteous woman because her faith causes her to act. It was the type of faith that was living. Martin Luther puts it better than I can. This is what he says. Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing good things incessantly. It does not ask whether good works are to be done, but before the question is asked, it has already done this and is constantly doing them. Whoever does not do such works, however, is an unbeliever. He gropes and looks around for faith and good works, but knows neither what faith is nor what good works are. And yet he talks and talks with many words about faith and good deeds. You cannot have true faith without deeds. Faith without deeds is dead. Now we are going to talk about ways in which we can care for the lowly, the poor in spirit, who God brings into our lives. But let's also examine our faith. Again, James isn't suggesting that you need more faith or a better quality faith. Simply trusting wholly in Jesus, in the strength of his death and resurrection to bring peace between you and God is all that is required. And this faith will necessarily lead you to good deeds. It will lead you to obedience under Jesus, to love and care for the poor in spirit. So does your faith do this? Is the Holy Spirit working in you when the lonely, the poor, the hungry, the physically sick, the mentally unwell, the people who have no potential to return the honour and mercy that is shown to them, when they come across your path, when they walk through your church doors, stumble into your workplace, bump into you around uni, Are you compelled to do good for them? To extend to them the undeserved honour and mercy which was extended to you by the Lord Jesus? Does your heart stir with compassion for God's chosen ones, those who are poor in the eyes of the world? Do you desire to honour God's chosen ones and God's chosen way? If not, examine your faith What is it that you have been trusting in? Have you been hoping that those who are rich and influential will be able to lift the profile of Christianity at UWA and in Perth? Have you fallen into thinking that your goodness, that your service leading and preaching and helping out at youth group and kids' church and your one-to-ones, have you fallen into thinking that that those things excuse you from the duty of loving unconditionally the people God has made and put around you? Have you put yourself into the role of judge, discriminating between rich and poor according to your own metrics? Have you decided that you prefer judgment to mercy, forgetting the great mercy that has been shown to you? Is your faith empty and dead? Talking a great deal about faith, but never doing, never acting out in obedience to Jesus. If not, please don't leave here 
thinking that your job is just to do better, to work harder, to do good and to slave away so that you might will your faith into being. Know that your faith must be the right type of faith. That You can't just see Jesus as an ATM machine where you put in your faith pin and he spits out your salvation. Know that biblical and theological literacy is not the same as saving faith. Know the great honour and mercy that has been given to you by Jesus. And knowing this, be better, work harder, do good, slave away, so that your good deeds might work together with your faith. Do better by others, work harder at showing love and honour to those who are unlovely and dishonourable. Ask them questions, bring them tea, sit with them, knowing that God has chosen those who are poor to be rich in faith. You are clean because Jesus has washed you clean with his blood. Uh, And so hug them, hold their hands, go to their house. They can't make you dirty. Read books, listen to podcasts, talk to people so that you can grow your understanding of how to best care for people, how to guide them through the particular things they are struggling with. Here's a good place to start. Uh, This book is called How to Walk into Church. This book tells you how to be praying for people as you walk into church. Imagine how that might change how you walk into church. Imagine who you would sit next to, who you would seek out, having prayed that God would give you the strength to do so. Do great good in the service of God, sparing nothing, knowing that Abraham was willing to give up his son, knowing that God has given up his son. Miss that coffee date with your bestie. Get D's instead of H days, or P's instead of C's. Make time for the people who God has given you strength to care for. Slave away for Jesus, knowing that we have been set free from a much crueler slavery, slavery to death, a slavery to those who we see as rich and influential, a slavery that leads us that leaves us always wanting to impress at the cost of discriminating against God's chosen ones and God's chosen way. Let your faith and actions work together, praising God that mercy triumphs over judgment. Why don't we pray? Gracious Lord, we thank you for your immense goodness to us in giving us your son, Jesus. Please be at work in us by your spirit uh, that we might be showing this honour and mercy to others. We would be eager eager, uh, to do good deeds to others that we might show your love and honour and mercy to those who you put around us. Amen.